0: The Future of SMART, a project of Grantmakers for Education, will explore ideas at the intersection of education, equity, and philanthropy that point us towards a radical re of our education system. We'll hear from those working
1: at the edge of what's possible and explore what it means to support transformative change
0: for young people and their communities.
2: Hello everyone and welcome to The Future of Smart Podcast, a project of Grantmakers for Education. My name is Olga Joshi Hansen, Chief Program Officer of EdFunders, author of the book The Future of Smart, and your host. The EdFunders team returned from our annual conference energized and excited. The conference engaged the most diverse group of participants ever. Our members and their partners organized powerful sessions that took on issues of equity, race, inequality, and the systemic barriers that confront young people and families head on. We collectively built a 20,000 piece mosaic depicting the faces of the young people we all seek to serve. And we got to interview many of our attendees at EdFunders Live about their personal learning journeys and their greatest hopes for the future of education. Our final plenary conversations focused on the idea of igniting hope as we look ahead to the future. Both were such great conversations, we wanted to make sure folks had a chance to hear the insights that were shared. Today's episode is taken straight from our First live plenary panel in Austin, Texas, on October 22nd. Our guests were Pam Cantor, founder and senior science advisor for Turnaround for Children, Bob Hughes, Director of K-12 Education at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, and Jim Shelton, Chief Investment and Impact Officer at Blue Meridian Partners. All three of our panelists agreed that we sit at a moment when our aspirations for education and young people need to be aligned with many of the ideas we've discussed with past guests on the future of SMART this season. We need to be intentional about building learning environments and contexts that reflect the developmental needs of young people, we have to honor the critical need for young people to have a sense of belonging and identity. And we need to align around broader definitions of success in both academics and life. Luckily, parents, communities, young people, employers, and civic leaders are all calling for our public education system to serve them in new ways. The moment is ripe for funders and their partners to work together to make this more human centered system a reality. It's really exciting to see everyone here. It's been wonderful to see the hallways and the rooms this week just kind of alive with conversations. Um, you know, on Monday, our team had a conversation about the Zen part of a conference. You plan and you anticipate and you change and you plan. And then you let it go um, because it's not ours anymore. Um, Hundreds of other people come, right? You are members, your partners, the hotel staff, seen and unseen. We all come together to co-create an experience, which is exactly what we've done. And so first I want to say thank you for co-creating a few wonderful days of fellowship and learning, um, both literally and figuratively, my name is Olga Joshi Hansen, I'm Chief Program Officer at Grantmakers for Education, and this conference um, has been in my mind and part of how I spent my days and nights for the last year. Um, so literally and figuratively, we've co-created. If you haven't done it already, Outside the Doors is a huge mural mosaic project. Um, it was, the mural was designed by young people um, around the theme of this year's conference, And over the last couple of days, hundreds of you came and put together 10,000 tiles to make the mosaic. So please do check that out. Um, There were typewriter rodeo poets that brought some of us to tears um, with poems that they co-constructed with us. Um, Dozens of you came and stopped by the Ed Funders Live podcast studio that we had to share your thoughts about meaningful learning in your own lives and what that means for how we think about education. And then there's the learning that we've created together. During learning sessions. So I've been talking to a lot of people who've reflected that this room and the hallways of this year's conference feel like they better reflect the diversity um, of our students, the nation, um, and our communities. And I've appreciated the really powerful, vulnerable conversations that folks have been willing to engage in um, about racial justice, about privilege, about power, and how all of these intersect with educational philanthropy. So we began on Monday with two pre-conference sessions. Um, One was on the purpose of education and directions for educational philanthropy. The other was our fellowship for equity, empowerment, and storytelling. And we had amazing fellows that opened Tuesday morning, um, sharing their authentic and vulnerable pieces with us. And I think that session and the conversation that we had there set the tone um, for the next couple of days and the conversations that have followed. So on Tuesday, Travian Shorters reminded us how important it is for us to begin our work uh, pushing back on a scarcity mindset that dominates our culture, right? This tendency that we all have to begin with the deficits of community, the deficits of children and youth. And he invited us to begin by recognizing everyone has aspirations for themselves and their children, and they have capacities that they bring to the table. And so we need to frame conversations about solutions around those assets. And then we heard from young leaders um, and educators here in the Austin region who are doing really powerful work in the face of conflict, and the politicizing of education and learning. And they articulated the challenges really uh, powerfully, but I walked away inspired because it's obvious that they carry a lot of hope um, and purpose into the work that they do. And then yesterday's lunch plenary zoomed us out a bit with Brian Stryker, uh, providing a bit more context for us to consider in this moment in America. There's a lot of uncertainty about leadership, political leadership, educational leadership at the local and state levels. There are real challenges um, around toxic conflict, or as Amanda Ripley calls it, high conflict. And I've been thinking about her observation yesterday that we too often frame conversations in artificial binaries that ignore the complexities um, of being human, of being in true community, of what it means to craft solutions. I've been reflecting about how I've done that in my own work and life and how we can get better, how I can get better at holding space, right? In different ways for diverse perspectives as we work to create an equitable and just system. And that brings us to today and our final plenary um, that's going to focus all us in on the theme of this year's conference, which is Igniting Hope, as we try and align around a shared vision of what education can be and enable for young people in America. So it's a real honor and privilege today to kick off with our first plenary conversation with three amazing leaders in our field. Bob Hughes is Director of K-12 Education at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Dr. Pamela Cantor is founder and science, senior science advisor at Turnaround for Children, and a thought leader on human potential, the science of learning and development, and educational equity. And then um, Jim Shelton, Chief Investment and Impact Officer at Blue Meridian Partners. So please join me in welcoming them. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. Um, I'm very excited to be here with you all today. Um, and I wanna kick us off um, by having you each introduce yourself. And the prompt I'll offer is, um, we know your titles, uh, but what do we all need to know about the unique perspective that you bring as a person? Not that your title isn't part of who you are, but um, what's the perspective you're gonna bring to your conversation in this conversation today? So um, I'll start with you, Bob. Um,
0: great question. Uh, I think one thing that people don't know about me is um, kind of my early career working with community organizers and how much that imprinted on me the importance of thinking about equity, working with communities, working with parents in both the technical aspects of education, but also the political aspects of education. I was talking to some friends here earlier today about back in the day in District 27 in New York, uh, which if you don't know it is Bensonhurst and Far Rockaway, And, you know, it wasn't long ago, 1993, that they finally had an African-American woman as superintendent. And when she got there, she actually, um, on her first day of work, somebody scratched an obscenity in the front of her car. And what she ended up doing, we ended up, I was at a place called Advocates for Children at that point. What we ended up doing was supporting her and working with her to kind of rethink the board and how she operated. But the guts of that woman was extraordinary and remains an inspiration. She drove her car around with that obscenity for three weeks. She wasn't going to be intimidated by what was a white majority in that community school district. So those are really important experiences. And I think a lot of you have those experiences. And we're trying at the foundation to do what we do well, which is technical work and thinking about long haul problems. But also just always remembering how complicated it is on the field, on the ground and how important that ground game is to ultimately get to success for our young people.
2: Thanks. Pam?
3: Well, I think most people know that I was uh, a practicing doctor for many years and working a lot with children. My specialty was children who had been exposed to trauma. And, but the main thing I think that I'd want you to know that I learned is that First, if you work directly with children and you're lucky enough to do that, they teach you everything that you need to know, all the stuff that is not in books. The other thing is that you witness firsthand that not only do children surmount adversities of all kinds, they are malleable to the experiences around them, a relationship, an environment, somebody who believes in them. So I witnessed... Unbelievable change and growth in children and nothing, nothing will ever dissuade me about what's possible if we provide what they need.
1: Thanks. Jim. Uh, I'm Jim Shelton. I think for me, the thing that has shown up a lot lately is I've, I've, the thing that brought me into education is the thing that is, I've continued to be propelled by. Um, I had the opportunity to go to a different school than my neighborhood school and um, so I remember very distinctly being in third grade at my best friend's house, and his brother was in the sixth grade, and I thought he was the coolest, smartest person that I ever knew. Um and in that moment, I wound up helping him with his homework. And in my immediate reaction was: something is wrong if he doesn't know how to do what he. Should know at sixth grade. And it has nothing to do with him. It has nothing to do with him. And what I, I feel like is for the bulk of like a whole lot of time now is my work has been about getting us and our systems to recognize that all of the things that we project onto children and their circumstances about their inability to realize their potential is just a reflection of our own failures. And I, I just want us to st- sit with that and then get out of our seats and start running instead of walking. Um, that's, that's where I am today.
2: Mm-hmm. Thanks. So we're on the third of three days um, and we've had great speakers and conversations. Um, as you stand in this moment, What are your best hopes um, for what learning experiences could be for young people? How has the pandemic broadened our vision of what's possible? Um, And I'll start with you, Pam.
3: You know, it's an incredible thing what a disruption like this uh, does, because it it makes you think about what are the things that are the essentials, the non-negotiables for kids in any learning setting. So one is that kids absolutely have to have a primary relationship that they can count on, that they trust, and that relationship is not just the emotional motivator in their life. It's actually a biologic one, too. The, the other thing that we, I think, are seeing right now is, are the ways in which the environments that have been our educational settings have not worked for most kids. Just based on the fact that kids are individuals, their individuality is distinct, their potential is limitless. And one of the first principles of human development is that context, environments, relationships, and experiences drive development, not genes. So once we know that, we know that our job is to design context. As Jim said, it's not the kid. It's it's what we have provided around that child to unlock what's inside them. Bob?
0: Well, you know, in part because of two people next to me, one of the things we've been thinking a lot about is what constitutes an environment where students are motivated, engaged, and persist in any subject? but now in math. And that MEP, as we kind of call it, we have to have an acronym at the Gates Foundation, otherwise we're not doing our job, um, has really kind of emerged from investing in 39 different communities for the last five years in continuous improvement and work we're doing around eighth grade, ninth grade, and and college well-matched post-secondary on-track metrics. What we've seen, particularly in the pandemic, was how important the whole child and then those specific aspects of the child together with other aspects of children were in creating an environment where they could be successful as learners. And for us, it was exciting to to learn from the leadership of our grantees who started to use things like PERTS, who started to think about what is the relationship between academics and belonging? How do we create a different environment for young people that takes into account their interests, their voice, their agency? And they were enacting that in a time of great uh, turmoil. And now that's even more important. And so I hope that as we kind of go forward, we don't backslide and go to a place where we once were, where reform was really about a test, but rather to think about reform as a place where we create thriving environments for students. I'm stealing that from Pam. Uh, (laughs) But where we really do create an environment where kids learn, they enjoy schooling, they persist in schooling, and they understand its value in their lives on their terms. Because if we can't do that, public education isn't going to make it, and there's enough understanding of that amongst parents and communities that that is increasingly going to be a demand.
1: So I, I think it's important to remember that when we say like what we just went through, we got to remember that there were three crises that we faced as a country. There was the COVID, there was a the racial reckoning, and it's the economic impact of it all, um, and the and when I say the economic impact of it all, the revelation that the inequities that we have been ignoring for a long time existed and have persisted and are getting worse, and they're not only getting worse. And sorry, you guys who have not been exposed to me um, will know that I am not Mr. Sunshine in the morning. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so. <laughs> but this is real, right? The, the reality is that what we have is a revelation of the inequity in a way that we have been unwilling to face. We've been unwilling to face the fact that um, the upward mobility in this country has been declining from a better chance of, chance of doing better than your parents of 90% if you were born in the 1940s to just 50-50 if you were born in the 1980s, right? That's for everybody. That's not just for black and brown kids. And for black and brown kids, we know what that looks like. So. We have revealed a whole set of things through the pandemics that have forced a, a realization of the several things. One is that we can't have these conversations anymore without actually overlaying the, the lens of race. Like the ability to just genericize the answers has been stripped away, and people want to deny that, and there's, we're going to fight about it. But the reality is. There is no way to say that you're going to go after these problems without dealing with the issues of race that are embedded in them. And people who are serious about the work and who still rely on science, who still rely on rigor, even though they used to push those things to the side sometimes, now are recognizing and they can't do that anymore. Number two, it has become apparent that the spread is real. right? So I, I used to do this, um, the, it, right when I left CZI, I did this thing to say, okay, so where I want to take my work and it was called um, disruptive reconstruction, um, with the notion of building off disruptive innovation and the needs for something like a new reconstruction. And in that, one of the things that we hi- I highlighted was that um, the disparities—you guys may remember seeing this—that the disparities for uh, what are called depths of despair for white people have been increasing dramatically, right? And what is happening is that the things that were attributed to black and brown people as cultural uh, maladies that came from the way we live our lives, when all of a sudden the economic downturn and other things have started to hit white communities, the opioid epidemic, you're seeing these same kinds of trends in the white community, leading even to the only race that has actually seen declines in lifespan, right? So the notion that this is just an isolated problem has also been stripped away. So what is the opportunity that this creates? Well, the opportunity that this creates is one to have real conversations, which is a hard political thing in this world, but real conversations about. So what are the solutions that are needed that actually address the real problems that come when people live in poverty and when mobility is in the way? The second is that, as Pam pointed out, it is actually context that matters, right? So, so all of a sudden, look, this conversation about genes, you know, that people like hid from and, And then some people interject with these crazy books every once in a while, like, okay, it's clearly not about these differences in people anymore. It is it is about what we're doing for them and with them. That creates an opportunity for a different kind of problem solving than we've had before. And the third is we actually, even as bad as things got, learned a lot through the process of trying to educate our kids in this very different context, a moment in time, where in fact, we have recognized the intersection of your physical health and your mental health and your identity and your academic achievement and your social emotional learning in ways that we hadn't before. Now, if we can keep ourselves from running back to what we knew because it's familiar, there's an opportunity for us to extend that into a new future for teaching and learning. And that's where I think the opportunity is for us.
2: So, so I was going to start with you for this question, but you're all sunshine this morning, so I wasn't sure about doing it. So, <laughs> but I'm still going to, I'm still going to start learning loss. You know, the conversations around learning loss um, and that term is being used a lot. And it does feel as though that term and the mindset it creates is actually incentivizing us to, you know, high dosage tutoring, doing more of what we used to do before. So, how do we make sense about those discussions? Discussions of where kids are right now, where we go, what they need. Um, Could we be more asset based in terms of how we are talking about what kids need and therefore how we move forward?
1: Yeah. So so one, I think that we have to anchor um, in two things. One is the, the, the language of potential for our young people and the unrealized potential, but the unlimited potential has to be the driving language of our work. And the question is, how are we unlocking the potential that is already in them as the work that we need to do as opposed to fixing them? The second is recognizing that in order for them to have opportunity, that means that there are things that they have to be able to learn and be able to do and that there are trajectories that work better than others um, and that we failed them when we failed to provide them with the opportunities that actually work. Now, that sounds like at at the 100,000-foot level, sounds like something no one could disagree with. But if you go down to how do we actually operationalize this in the context of schools? um, Why don't we have more priority on, you know, Sharice is gonna come up here. We have the data and evidence that talks about the importance of having teachers of color in the classroom. What is the investment that we're making in that so that that experience is different? We have the data that tells us about what it actually takes to alleviate the stress in order to create the environments where young kids can be successful. Why don't we pay more attention to the environmental context when we're doing this? So in some ways, this is the oldest story to tell, but it's the most important story to tell, which is why aren't we doing the things that we know work and then getting better prepared to accelerate the pace at which we're learning about the things that we don't know about how we support our kids well, given this more integrated view of what their needs are and what their possibilities are.
3: Bob, Pam? One of the things that really, really makes me angry about the learning loss language, aside from the obvious, that can you imagine any child that would get better at anything if you were just telling them what they lost and, and, and all of this kind of gap uh, in their learning? So first of all, in first rules of motivation, you would never do that logically. But the other thing is, in the schools that my organization, Turnaround for Children, worked in, all learning was gone when testing was going on. Okay, what happened in the schools is this tremendous emphasis on preparing kids to take a test. So what did we actually think was going to happen when kids have not been in school? So they aren't getting the test prep. Okay, did we really think that we weren't going to see changes in testing, given the focus on testing? So it's this, can you really lose something that you hadn't learned in the first place? So this goes back to Jim's point about things that are getting unmasked. The other thing is that many schools deal with kids that have an injury, an accident, an operation. They're out of school for six months. Do they catch up? Yes, schools, many schools know how to do this. So what's happening, and you can see the no good deed goes unpunished and unintended consequences. We're labeling it a gap and a deficit. There's this huge focus on so-called high dose tutoring, not the holistic picture that Jim just painted. And what do we think is gonna be happening with those tutors? OK, they're going to be getting ready to take a test. <laughs> and then that test may show that the scores, in fact, got up, So went up. So did more learning happen? This is the thing that, that really, really troubles me about how we're naming the problem and how that then drives a narrow solution, and a wrong one, in my view.
0: Yeah, let's let's dwell on the unmasking for a moment, because I think that's really important to acknowledge. Has there been learning loss? Yes. Has there always been learning loss for some students? Absolutely. The system is structured in ways that fundamentally don't work for young people, and frankly, don't work for the adults who work for them either. And if we wanted to create a set of experiences that would alienate young people from math or alienate them from learning, we have done a really good job of that. Um, and so the learning loss question can be one where we take high dosage tutoring and try to optimize against an existing system that is not working for too many students and too many adults. Or we can start to think about the transformation of models, the new ideas that are necessary to create an enriched learning environment for every student. I mean, there are challenges that go well beyond the education system. Jim talked about the concentration of poverty we've always had an enormous concentration of poverty. And have we created tools and systems that enable young people in those circumstances to thrive? Or do we just take what's worked for some and impose it on others and then blame them, not recognizing their assets, their motivation, and what the community brings to the table in the education process? It's, we have an invitation I think at this moment for much greater transformation, much greater creativity, in thinking about how schools both function as schools and intersect with broader social systems that are supposed to lift all people up, that are supposed to create economic mobility, and as important as economic mobility, deep citizenship and empathy towards one another. And we aren't building those systems right now. And that's my biggest fear, that the gravitational pull of habit, together with structures that are in place, will just push really well-meaning people back to what they know rather than creating environments where they can explore something new and think about the transformation that the pandemic highlights we need to undertake. A transformation based on economics, a transformation based on racial segregation, a transformation uh, based on what we actually ask young people to learn and do, and whether that's really relevant and empowering in their lives, and frankly lifting it up, whether it's relevant and empowering for our society. So I, I hope, you know, but I fear that people who've worked so hard the last three years, who are so exhausted by trying to kind of rebuild schools, aren't gonna have that energy to kind of reimagine based on what we know and what has been unmasked. So I think that's a collective challenge for all of us. We need to bring energy to the people who are going to help create that system. And that's, that's gotta be a fundamental goal for all of us.
2: So, Bob, um, I hear there was some news from Gates this week. I mean, I'm not, um, but uh, I I want to, you you alluded to this, so I want to follow up. So Temple Grandin has a new book out um, called Visual Thinking, um, and it, there's an article in The Atlantic called Against Algebra. So that, saying that makes this seem more pointed than it is, which it isn't. But she talks about how algebra, she uses algebra as an example of how, you know, schools have kind of um been very single-minded, very kind of in there, in how we think about math. That's nothing like the math that people use in the real world. Um, and she quotes Paul Lockhart, who, uh, wrote Mathematicians Lament, who wrote, if I had to design a mechanism for the express purpose of destroying a child's natural curiosity and love of pattern making, I simply wouldn't have the imagination to come up with the kind of senseless, soul-crushing ideas that cons- constitute contemporary mathematics education. Um, and we had a great conversation during a deep dive panel to, um, on math about the need to modernize how we think about math today and what all kids need, as well as ensure equity to allow students in. So as you think about um, the new strategy in math that Gates has just unveiled, how are you gonna be thinking about balancing the legitimate need for high standards and, you know, making sure all kids have the basics with the reality that young people are unique and their pathways are unique.
0: You know, maybe we should rethink that and do literacy instead, given those <laughs> quotes. <laughs> <laughs> um, look, I think the Granny Book really underscores a couple of things that I think are really important and that I am super excited about in the strategy. I can't underscore All the reasons why I think it's helpful for us to go deeper in this subject, for the foundation to go deeper, for for all of you to continue to do what you're doing, and then for us to partner and think in different ways together. Um, Math is unique. It has a right answer. It has a learning progression in how we learn and master concepts, but some of that learning progression and some of those concepts are very old. You know, the math pathways that we see in, in middle school and high school were announced at the end of the 19th century. That's been there for a long time. And the math we see in schools typically is derived from about 1935, 1937. So there's a lot we can do to think about math and still be true to math as a really important skill in the vocational world. So in the Granite Book, what I love about it is there is a right answer in math. We're committed to enable kids to have the procedural and conceptual skills to get to the right answer. Let's be clear. But there are multiple paths that you can use to get to the top of that mountain and get that answer. There are visual learners. There's a variety of different pedagogies that I think are very powerful and enable young people to learn. But there's also the need to get the math right. So while we're excited about building, you know, with illustrative math, with a variety of other folks who are doing math, there are ways we can change the pedagogy. There are ways we can rethink delivery that make it relevant to students, that enables them to persist in that zone approximate uh, struggle, and ultimately see, enables them to see the relevance of what we're trying to do. If we were just focused on the procedural aspects of math, I would be very disappointed with our strategy and what we were proposing to do. What we're trying to think about is how do you build the fluency in early level math to build the conceptual knowledge in mid-level math to apply it to different disciplines and opportunities as students age and progress in their skills and fluidity. And so we're gonna be focusing, uh, I'll just do the quick wrap and happy to talk to anybody uh, afterwards. We've got a couple of big buckets that we're gonna be focusing on for 10 years. Um, one is just really getting the tools right, right? When you talk to teachers, they're overwhelmingly disappointed with commercial curriculum and the way it plays out. They're spending enormous amounts of personal time modifying that curriculum to meet the needs of the students in front of them. We need to do better in the tools and materials we give to teachers. And I think they're glimmers of digital tools that enable students to gain a deeper sense of relevance and equip teachers to be much more active and proactive in the classroom against what they do. To Pam's point, be a, a, a meaningful adult in that student's life. So we're, we're, we're going to be looking at technology, but we, I just really want to underscore how important teaching and teachers are to this overall vision of what we think a good math classroom looks like. Second thing we're going to be doing is really building the professional capacity and learning of teachers with the tools we're working in and investing in and really talk to them about what that may look like and how we modify it. Again, teachers overwhelmingly report that the typical, in a typical district professional development session, they wanna kind of take number two pencils, to just go, ah, it's unbearable. I've sat through many of them back in the day when I used to walk schools. We can do better in equipping teachers to be curious, giving teachers the skills necessary to be successful. Third thing we're gonna really be thinking about is math pathways. Um, really thinking hard about what are the progressions and pathways, both in the early years and then later in high school. And finally, one of the things I'm really excited about is we've reserved 10% of our budget to start to think about innovation. What should math look like 15 years out? Where is the world going? What do we need to do pedagogically to think about a different kind of math experience for students? And what we're tentatively thinking, and you know, if you agree with anything I've said, don't email me. Uh, but if you disagree, I want to hear immediately from you as quickly as possible so we can make some new mistakes. But uh, we're really interested in thinking about unscheduled times, summer schools, electives. How do we use that time to really go you know, beyond assessment, as Pam was talking about, to really think about new ways of creating pedagogic opportunities for teachers and the students themselves? A school I love is Beam. It's a summer program in New York. You go there, it's focused on kids of color. They start in sixth grade. They go through 12th grade. It's pandemonium but those kids are becoming expert in math and they are loving every single minute they're in the program. We can create that across the country with staff because I think they have that aspiration too so we need to build up. I am done with preaching, happy to give you more information later.
2: <laughs> I want to pick up on something you said about technology. So Jim, you know technology is a tool and it can be used to make more traditional approaches to education more efficient or it can be used to expand right? how we think about where learning happens, how, with whom, what do you see as some of the most, like a compelling example of where technology is being integrated into learning um, environments and experiences and where would you push folks who are investing in ed tech um, to dream bigger or differently?
1: So I'm I'm, I'm gonna answer a different question. Okay. Is that yeah, one, <laughs> I, one I when I realized it didn't really answer your last question, and I also see that we got like a few minutes left. Yeah, that's great. And some of the things that have been said have been so so profound. Um, I think technology has has got the opportunity to help us really transform the landscape for young people. We saw and we've seen before the way it provides access. We know it has the potential to actually have much deeper insight because when you're using technology, you not only get to see the outcome, but if you do it right, you can see the process of learning. So we can learn a lot more about how each individual student is succeeding, struggling, and then frankly, in macro, really start to understand like what the process of learning looks like in very different ways. We can actually really reshape the way we think about how time is structured so that teachers can do the things that are most precious that only teachers can do. And then we can use the technology to help us to support students to do the things that they frankly can drive for themselves or with their peers or in other environments. So I think all of those things are showing up and we see examples of those. I won't try and call any in particular out. But the thing that I want to, that we've not talked about is something that Bob mentioned and is reflecting in the other part is what we are most at risk at and people taking as a lesson from our time right now is using all of these different specific tools to try and solve the problem for right now. And one of the things that we said is, the reality is that the problems that we have created are not gonna get solved in the next three years. There's not an acceleration program to solve the problems that we've created. So the question for us is, how do we actually revamp the entire system in a way that solves the problem that we knew we had from the beginning. And that, there are three things that we haven't talked about. One is, how do we bring purpose into school? The the biggest problem that we've had, in my humble opinion is, there are very few schools that I walk into where most of the kids wouldn't describe it largely as boring. And where a predominant question is not, what am I gonna, why am I doing this? What am I gonna use this for? And we have yet to solve that problem and technology, I will come back to this, like the opportunity for exposure in ways that are compelling to really real reasons to learn. Like with technology, we should just be exposing kids. There's no reason they shouldn't be able to see the entire world given the technology that is at our fingertips, let let alone what we can develop in very short order. The same thing with learning environments that actually matter. So I want to just I'll stop there. Um, and I'll talk about the ways in which we can bring together different environments to actually use technology to, like the fire that unlocks that potential. But I just don't want us to like start shooting for tools when, in fact, there's something actually different that needs to happen and the tools need to support it.
2: That's great. Mm-hmm. I mean, I have many more questions, but we are coming to, uh, to the end of our time. So I want to. We're hearing from many families, many students in a way that's concerning that they really don't believe our public education system can give them what they want. Yeah. Um, and they are leaving. micro schools, learning hubs, all sorts of things. Mm-hmm. So public education feels like it's, it's at a moment of great risk because when that many people leave, the system collapses. And I, I would posit, I was gonna ask you, but I'll posit that you can't have equity without a public education system. And a lot of the investments are what you all have been talking about, which is infrastructures and systems and different ways of doing things. So, if you were going for the twenty-year play here, because we're not going to transform the system in two, um, long-term strategic investments that let public education be more adaptive and responsive, where would you put your dollars? And Pam, I'll I'll start with you. So, if
3: I was thinking in a time frame of twenty years. The thing that I would tackle first is defining the purpose or redefining the purpose of education and redefining it with a powerful narrative that takes into account what we know. And that is that our young people are distinct as individuals. They are loaded with potential. And that if our priorities are to provide the environments, experiences, and relationships that nurture their growth so that their agency is activated, that is a developmental bet. And that can't happen in, in a short time frame. We have to remove impediments. And one of the biggest by far is how we measure. We don't measure the right things. We don't measure context. And yet we say context is the primary driver of change. We keep measuring the fish, we never measure the lake. So removing impediments to the kinds of ability to use what we know, which was what Jim was talking about, is the other place that I'd focus. Bob?
0: I think, you know, we're making a big bet on math 10 years, not 20, but we'll see. Um, the thing that I'm excited about is I think the foundation's really serious about sticking this out for the long term and continuing to work on this problem until we figure out ways to be effective with you and the field uh, around achievement. But I also think that there is a uh, a reality that we're confronting where we really need to recognize that some of that implosion has already occurred. Like when I look at the New York City public school system, it is 73% students of color, 80% of the students of color in New York State. And it is the vast majority of kids who can have already left. So that is sad, the mythic diverse public system has not existed in New York City for 25 years. We may be unique because it's a segregated system in many ways. But I also think that the people we have are really the people we're blessed to have. So we need to figure out what we're doing with those people in ways that transform the system. And I do believe uh, that we need as a group a different kind of rhetoric in how we talk about public education. We need to move from generality to specifics. We need to acknowledge context with facts about what is in that context. And we need to build our own professional knowledge and the professional knowledge of teachers around very specific challenges embedded in this broader sense of purpose and values. So we can talk about professional learning. but Are we talking about professional learning for pre-K through second grade? Because that's very different from professional learning for high school. Are we talking about curriculum that is on the shelf, that reifies sitting in, in lines? Or are we talking about a much more creative curriculum that enables young people to discover and learn concepts and master the procedural skills. So I think I answered in about eight different ways, but the big bet for us is math.
2: Oh, yes, yeah. thank you. Jim, I'm gonna give you the final word on this.
1: Sure, so I mean, we talked about a lot of these things already, but I, you know, the good news for me is I've, I've tried, but I failed at this big bet. One, we talked about needing to better define what it means to actually unlock the full potential of a young person and re- recognize the linkages between their mental health, their physical health, their identity, their social, emotional health uh, uh, development, and their academic and uh, other cognitive skills. And, and, and then, as Pam said, be able to link that to measures of how that plays out in different contexts so you can support their growth and development. Not evaluative growth and development. The second is we don't actually have the infrastructure to actually do that research and learning. And the way you do that is a connection between the researchers and the practitioners in real environments where you actually have the instrumentation to be able to see what's happening in context at scale. and And then from that large amount of insight, then actually start to figure out what works for whom and what context which we consistently struggled with. But finally, that's another thing that technology can allow us to do. We can see things at a scale that we never can see before. Still recognizing it's still about the interactions at that individual human level. And then the third thing becomes, well, then how do you translate that all into the tools, the resources, the strategies that lots of people can do so you can actually take this to scale and make it broadly accessible to everyone? And recognize that the connections between what we consider our learning systems, our school systems, education systems, pirate systems and training systems in the workforce need to be linked to our other systems so they don't have to bear the full burden. And so how do you create the tools and resources that our educators, as we call them, need? But also, how do you actually create the plugins, if you will, from the health system, the mental health system, the employment systems, so that the um, work of school becomes very different and can leverage lots of other resources? That's my 20-year bet.
2: And I think, you know, one thing I'm hearing what all of you said is this is so big. It is beyond the capabilities of one foundation, one funder. And so as a network of grant makers, what does that mean, right, for us as we leave here, think about kind of how we move forward? So thank you all so much for your time and your insights. Please join me in giving them an of applause. Thanks for listening. The Future of Smart podcast is a project of grantmakers for education and is made possible through the support of our generous member sponsors. If you like the podcast, please follow or subscribe and follow us on social media. You can find links to resources related to today's episode in the show notes. More episodes and events can be found at edfunders.org. To learn more about the Future of Smart, visit ulca.com, U-L-C-C-A